how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Tadeo is a feral child of San Francisco drag queens, so he's unapologetically and wholeheartedly 100% gold standard queer. Bored and bullied in suburban hell, he left at the tender age of 16, seeking sanctuary and found a chosen family of tender knob and height street Denzians who migrated to San Francisco's counterculture. No stranger to colourful characters, Unconventional lifestyles and many blurry days and sleepless nights led him to a sober lifestyle. A years-long stint in an isolated monastery, studying and practicing mindfulness meditation, chopping wood, digging trenches, reading metaphysical books and cross-country trail runs finally broke unhealthy patterns. He currently lives in Paris, France, where he is working on a Master's in Human Rights and Humanitarian Action at Sciences Po, specifically around the area of migration and human sex trafficking. His one fear in life is that he will turn into the old cat lady down the hall unless someone breaks his born-again virginity. Woo! Oh my well, god. <laughs> So, yeah, listeners, we record the in, the intro after we record the podcast, and that's like the most insane fucking bio I've ever heard. Bravo, Tadeo. Thank you so yeah. much for your bio. <laughs> amazing. So amazing. So this is an awesome episode with somebody who actually really, really knows what they're talking about so much more than we do that it's a real pleasure to learn from Tadeo today. I was born in the Philippines, and I um, immigrated to California when I was really young. Awesome. Yeah. And so how has that experience been in, in, in Paris? Oh, wow. I'm glad you asked. It's, it's, it's interesting because um, I'm a migrant thrice over, you know, and because I think I am so Californicated, there's certain things that, that, I, that I've noticed here that the diaspora tends to be more domestic help, you know, so there's kind of, I, I feel like sometimes I come up, come up against like a stereotype of who I'm supposed to be, not this, you know, student. So, yeah, it's just what it is, you know, it's, it's, it's sending countries that send migrants for work, you know, but you do get pigeonholed, I think, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and in the academic environment, what's that been like, as you're not allowed to talk about race? I know, weird. It's, well, there's, number one, there's um, only three Filipinos out of, like, I think 175 people in my department. So it's interesting. And two of them are straight from the Philippines. And I'm the only one from, from California. So in a sense, I, I think we bring an interesting voice, you know, but my, my voice is more in between like migrant slash um, hitting up against all these cultural norms that I grew up with, you know, around sex. In terms of California. In terms of California, in terms of um, how you're supposed to be, what you're expected to be when you grow up, you know, nice little Asian boy, don't talk back, you know, follow your elders, look what happened. 
Um, so actually, you, we usually open the conversation with uh, just clarifying pronouns. Sure. Uh, what are your preferred pronouns today? Um, ditch. No, just kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I respond to everything, but he, he, him, they is fine. Cool. She, yeah. her. She, her. Likewise, she, her. Fair enough. Awesome. And how are you today? I'm good. I'm a little nervous. So I'm and also very, very flattered and honored that you guys asked me to um, drink tons of espresso and just blab my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to, you know, what brought you here to um, Paris? I, I, I had that Emily in Paris dream, like I said earlier on. And, um, you know, being queer, I think it's sort of like it's almost intrinsically programmed into your DNA to like, oh, go to Paris. It's so pretty. Yeah. You know, so I think I think maybe that's the soft power that France sort of exports to a lot of Americans, you know, like the beauty of right. Paris and stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's gorgeous. So I thought, why not? And then I ended up, you know, getting into school here at Sciences Po. And so I'm here for two years. Big deal. Yeah. That's so it's, huge. Yeah. For those so. of it, for, for listeners who don't know about Sciences Po, it's like probably the most impressive and prestigious education in France. So Ooh. congratulations to Theo. Yeah, um, the daughter to Sciences Po, yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and can you tell us a little bit about like your background uh, academically and kind of what brought you there specifically and what you're studying there? Sure. Um, I always had this thing that regardless of how dark things got that I was going to go finish college. So I decided at a later age that with my 1.9 GPA, <laughs> I was going to try to try to go finish my undergrad. What does that mean? I don't know what a GPA is and I've always wanted to ask somebody. Oh, oh so it's a grade point average, you know. Okay. Basically how well you've done cumulatively with all, all the classes you've taken. And what 4.0 is the highest and a 1.9 is very, very low. <laughs> I just want oh, to... Oh, it's not good? It sounds good. <laughs> it's really like, bad. It's like F's and D's. That's basically how I started. Okay, you nice. Know. And so I fixed that up and then um, got back to junior college and then I transferred over to uh, UC Berkeley. And then I finished there last August um, <laughs> with an English degree. And then I decided after the whole um, George Floyd situation in the U.S., you know, I thought, OK, I'm graduating. I need to do something that's going to be um, relatively um, contributive to society. So I decided, OK, maybe I'll, I'll study human rights and humanitarian action. And I um, applied to Sciences Po and University of London. I got into here in Sciences Po. So that's how I ended up here. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm so yeah. glad you got in and I'm so Thanks. happy you're in Paris. Because Thank you. Like you said, the conversation it they they need to be had and they're not being had. So no. like Definitely. you're here for it. I hope Woo! so. So, and all. <laughs> yes. so we're super impressed by your C V. Can you tell us what it is that you're studying here? What you're you're doing a master's, right? Yes, that's correct. Um the CV thing is like, it's so weird. I felt very adult having to do it because we're forced to do it before we apply. So they specifically want a CV. And I was like, oh my God, what, what, what are these people looking for? You know? Um, so that was part of the, that's a part of the growth process thing was doing the CV and realizing that I've actually done a lot for some, some stuff. But yeah, um, I, I just applied to Sion. Wait, sorry. I, I got a little lost. Yeah. I, I applied to Sion's Po and to do that, to do a uh, master's in human rights and humanitarian action and, and some, by some force got in. <laughs> and then yeah. your, your focus on, on, in, in terms of human rights is actually on sex trafficking, correct? Yeah. It's migrations, which, um, oh, interesting. Of, 
Yeah, part of it becomes what about does that mean? migrations being like migratory patterns, irregular migration through, you know, basically walls between countries that are being crossed or people that want to cross um, just to better their lives, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so what have you discovered? What is like, what is the kind of revelation of your, <laughs> your impressive uh, yeah. education? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's sad a little bit because I think migration is really dictated by, um, politics, you know, and as we've seen in Ukraine of late, if you fall into a specific, um, country, and I, I, again, the whole race thing comes up because I'll, I'll give you an example. There were 76,000, um, uh, non-Ukrainians, people mostly from North Africa, Nigeria, and uh, India that were not allowed to cross along with the Ukrainians into the EU. So whether you say that that's a racialized topic or just a non-EU topic, it kind of blends in. And that's where the discourse gets really, really a bit, um, a little gray, you know. Uh, when you, when they were interviewing a lot of these Nigerians or these students who were, who were uh, transfer students, a lot of them were just saying that, well, you know, what was said specifically was only Ukrainians on the trains, only Ukrainians on the buses. And then they'd had to walk back to their respective cities, like, um, let's say 12 hours by foot and try to oh renegotiate the board, that borders another way. So it, it, this stuff was covered a little bit, but and, and, you know, again, it's, it's obviously it's such a huge problem, you know. And I'm not saying that Ukraine. I'm not blaming Ukraine in any in any shape or form, but there's definitely an issue here, like with seventy six thousand um, non EU members or or students not able to cross the border, along with everybody else. No, and how, how do you, it's absolutely appalling. And how do you think that? what kind of job do you think the media are doing about kind of opening that up and, and having people all aware of that? Do you think that's happening at all? Or do you think it's been kept very much under wraps? I think, well, number one, I, I found out about this through the BBC. So I think the BBC's reporting has been really, really um, balanced for the most part. And, and because the, the scope and the scale of what's happened in Ukraine is, is so disproportionate compared to 76,000, you know, exchange students. I think it's kind of, it's been spoken about, but it's not, um, it's, it kind of becomes like a secondary thing compared to what else is, else, and it is a secondary thing, I think, in my opinion, compared to what else has been happening. You know, but I think that's where studying migrations um, comes to play in that a lot of my professors where I go to school have been in the field giving us firsthand information about what's been going on at the borders. Usually one, one was in Hungary, the other one was in Poland. Um, and they're, it's going to take them a while to really figure out what really happened in terms of that exchange through the, through the border as non-EU uh, citizens. Yeah. No, but that's super interesting. I mean, and so to kind of like circle back in, if if meanderingly to the the question surrounding sure. kind of like uh, sex work versus sex trafficking, I remember when we kind of touched base on this earlier, you had mentioned that like a, not a lot of the thing that differentiates sex work and sex trafficking, because again, as as Rose mentioned, like on sober sex, we're very like pro sex work as work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it sounds Me like you're too. very much on the same page. Um, but kind of what differentiates sex work and sex trafficking and what does that have to do with migration? So 
basically sex work i mean you know sex work is is ideally um what sort i'm looking for um it, it, you have agency doing it you know it's your choice if you want to do it I, I i grew up around it i have no issue with it what happens is that during um migration when people want to get out of their countries a lot of people are sort of inducted into sex trafficking by virtue of them being presented with options that such as like they're supposed to be um like a temp agency you get this sort of work you clean houses whatever whatever but by, by the time you cross the border what happens is they take away people's documents and get them out in the streets and work in that capacity. So for instance, here in Clignancourt in the north of Paris, I was walking through one night and I heard these ladies, you know, I'd said hello, good evening in French and whatever. And I heard very distinct South American Spanish accents. And I was like, and there was like, you know, groups of them, like maybe 12, 15 standing around. And in my mind, I'm like, how did they get here? You know, with a Spanish accent or with a South American accent like that. And so when I did more digging, I found out that 90% um, of the sex workers in the streets of Paris aren't French. They all come from other countries. And then the two respective parks in the East and the West, you know, Bois de Boulogne, Bois de Vincennes, you see a lot of um, transgender sex workers who are also not French and other prostitutes who are working the streets. Um, and of course, the French um, are not allowed to count numbers because of the Vichy regime, you know, there's a lot of fear about being um, counted with what happened in World War II, with what happened to the mm -hmm. Jews, you know, so historically it's very embedded in their culture not to count, you know, and so in a way it becomes this passive aggressive thing where if we don't count it, we don't have the numbers, and if we don't know the numbers, they're not there. Yeah. So, oh my God. you know, what happens if they just fall through the cracks and there they are working you know, and um, without any protections whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, and also I think it, I, we were, I, my partner and I were watching that John Oliver show on, on sex work versus sex trafficking the other night that was talking about kind of the Nordic model that I guess France uses right. where um, customers are uh, criminal, like buying sex is criminalized, but selling sex is not, but yet you exactly. cannot set up a brothel and you cannot have like a kind of, um, advertise any kind of storefront. You can't advertise and solicit generally. Um, right. And I was wondering, yeah, how that kind of, like that legal dynamic, which is of course perhaps preferable to the United States criminalization of sex work in most mm -hmm. territories, um, kind of affects the, the differentiation between who is doing sex work versus who is being sex trafficked. Right. That's interesting you bring that up because I think um, the, that's an abolitionist model is what they call consider that, where they criminalize the Johns and then the folks that are working are technically supposed to have certain legal um, rights. Like what happened in the Netherlands where they finally legalized it, what happened is um, the, the Dutch citizens kind of were able to come out of the underground, you know, but the workers who didn't have EU citizenship had to go further underground. So, and that was what happened with that, I think, was um, the, the, the Johns, or the, the clients, I should say, um, had to come up with uh, sort of like more clandestine ways of, 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 of meeting, meeting the workers. And so it just became... 
an even more underground and an unsafe, unmonitored situation for a lot of the women and, and men who are working. And the no, that's really interesting that like, especially when you're kind of seeing all this through the lens of like crossing borders and who is considered quote unquote, a legal citizen of a space, like how that affects, because one would assume that the model in the Netherlands where it's decriminalized entirely is actually the like quote unquote, better model for sex workers, right. unless they're not actually protected by the state because they're not citizens. Right. Exactly. So in, in, in terms of the leg, like the lens of, um, migrating or human rights or <laughs> the kind of like double vision of that like yeah. what in your view would be i mean outside of the idea that like borders are constructs protect every right. human life <laughs> exactly, but like, exactly. yeah what what are you kind of learning would be a preferable kind of mode of moving forward especially in this area you know that actually you know protects and, and provides, you know, safety and security to people who are doing sex work? That's an interesting question because I've, I've kind of sat around and, and we have to ponder um, that, that very quite those things, you know, like what's what's possible, what's available. I read recently, I forgot the name of the book, but it's a professor, Cairns, who teaches, I think, in um, University of London, somewhere in London, and he proposes like uh, an open borders model where any, like, the borders just come open and everybody just does their thing and it, it basically just reassigns the politics and the policies. And it, it's hard, it's difficult to explain because it just seems so radical to me. Yeah. Do you, you think know? it's possible? I doubt. I, you know, I, maybe not in my lifetime, lifetime. I'd like it to be possible. It would be an interesting thing that, that the world order just shifts and changes and, and, and um, people are able to just go through borders and not have a problem but like you know that's that's a very i think utopian idea um yeah. but right now it just depends on it, it it depends on who's in in the in the policy and the politics of of border control and management you know and if you have a very conservative government you're going to have very strict border control measures like what's been going on in um in the mediterranean you know and then um and then you have, let's say, Biden in the United States, who is trying to have a new migration, I guess, control, allowing more migrants in. I'm, 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 it's, it's all very confusing. And it's, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on the matter, but I just feel like, you know, it's all politicized. And, and, and a lot of it is also very racialized, you know. And how that seeps into like the whole sex trafficking bit is just that there, when there's no system for control, people just fall in through the cracks. You know, I think on any given day, um, there are 40 million people that are trafficked in the world. And I think a, couple, a few million of that are mostly um, sex trafficking. But it's a billion dollar industry. I mean, I have some numbers for you if you want, you know. I, Yes. I'll read this to you. We love numbers. <laughs> we yeah. won't retain them at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I was like, maybe they won't get into the numbers, but, you know, just in case. Because I think it helps contextualize, doesn't it? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Because this is certainly a topic that I know nothing about, apart from I have a lot of concern for it. My grandma, my great-grandmother, who I was named after, was uh, a madam who ran a brothel and died Good of syphilis. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's my awesome. dad kind of... Yeah, I know. Not the she was a failed part, but <laughs> no, not the simplest part. But um, so is still big in France, apparently. Yeah, is it? it is. Oh. Um. Anyway, so you know, my dad's 
kind of grew up that was his grandmother who he lived with at times wow. and like grew up really that. so like that's definitely carried on into like that's definitely part of our family story you mm. know and I feel quite quite strongly about the issue but I have no other like concept about that yeah. um about how that works on like the ground level so I feel like numbers are really helpful to help root us in the information and like what what's actually what is actually bloody going on here okay. you know so yeah. if you would be so gracious to share those with us that would be mad helpful i would love to okay so let's say um according to a report released in 2017 by the ILO um which is the labor organization international labor organization there are approximately 40 people on any given day in 2016 that was a victim of the modern slave system. More importantly, 4.8 million were victims of forced sexual exploitation. 99% of course were women, unfortunately. The majority taking place in Asia, 70%, followed by Europe and Central Asia at 14%, Africa 8%, the Americas 4, the Arab states at 1. Uh, the same report says that 1 million of victims were forced sexual exploitation. 21% of all victims were children under 18. Oh, my God. That's when it's rough, you know, is, yeah. is when you see the kids. That's when it's really it, scary. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. and again, because I do think that, like, America, because of our kind of puritanical history, has a huge issue, obviously, with sex work and often our desire to protect children, especially, but also just humans from being sex trafficked. Like, kind of goes it, it it moves in ways that harm people who are doing completely consensual and voluntary sex work sure, um so like i'm very curious as to kind of how those how as you mentioned like if people can't be counted they they don't exist and then they mm -hmm. kind of fall through the cracks in terms of like numbers of humans who can be protected right right um and so i wonder like how they came up with those numbers because they're appalling right yeah well, I'm not sure how they, they count the numbers in the ILO. I will say, though, um, culturally, the one thing, because you mentioned uh, the American piece, America, surprisingly, donates or I think puts it funnels 100 million a year to various organizations in the United States to count um, sex workers just for security purposes. They want to know how, who are, who's in the country. Whereas um, in France, I was a bit shocked that nothing, there's really nothing being done about it, as, as I've mentioned before. You know, but you're also talking about two different cultures in that I think France has this sort of old world, old Europe mentality, like it's the oldest job in the world. You know, it's, right. a, very, it's a very laissez-faire, oh, it'll be there, it's not going anywhere, what can we do about it if right. we're going to have sex? And, you know, America comes from the Puritans. Where you yeah. can't have sex, no, you know, <laughs> ever so, with anybody. So give, exactly, we'll give Just you tons of money <laughs> to, to not have yeah. it. You know, so yes. either way, it's a very, very um, polarizing situation to be in. You know, you either have a shit ton of money that they give you, or they don't do anything about it at all. Yeah, and I feel like that narrative as well of like, oh, it's the oldest job in the right. in the world. It's an honest job, you know, all that kind of fucking shit. And like that whole narrative almost puts it in this very like Emily in Paris storybook thing. And then it gives everybody the opportunity to shut the book, put it back on the shelf and trot along with their very nice lives. And they're like, well, it's just for the businessmen who head off to the Bois or whatever. Like, it's not, it's in it's in the outside. It's not to do with us. Whereas I feel like when you're in Amsterdam, for example, you're very much like, it's confronted with it, like on a daily 
I mean, okay, we're talking about those different models, but what do you think, how can just like regular people like us or whatever, like support visibility around what's really going on? That's a great question. I, I, I felt really bad for a lot of the, the women, you know, who are doing it against their will. And I wanted to, I, I asked the professor, can I start a foundation? Can I start a nonprofit here in, in <coughs> excuse me, Paris to help? And they were like, no, you can't do that here in Paris because it's against the law. You'd have to do it in Brussels. So, what? Yeah, it's, it's a really political thing. It's very political that way. And so I said to myself, I told, told my professor, I said, why can't I start like in the, in the United States, an outreach program where we go out there at night, we talk to the ladies or the men or, or the whip, what, whatever. And, People. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and give them like packets, like condoms give them access to some kind of health care just to make them feel like they're seen and part of, right. part of the community that they do live in albeit if they think irregularly um so i haven't heard back about that you know i was like maybe we could do a, a, a donation drives like i'm not really sure maybe i'm being very naive about it but um there are some organizations it's just that they're not out there on the street actually liaising with people actually like kind of thrillingly because i spent a lot of time uh in the bois de boulogne like riding yeah. around riding my bike around the bois de boulogne there's actually several kind of service vans oh, okay. um that do i guess testing and kind of make sure everybody has like some water and can get get inside and warm up if they need to and oh, okay like, that are there to serve the sex workers in the woods which is really cool um of them to do so that's really good news okay um Sorry. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I th no, all good. Like, I wouldn't have known it unless I was kind of out, <laughs> out in the mean streets. Yeah, the you know, I got to go out there more. <laughs> yeah, we, I think we should do a field trip, which sounds like we're going to the zoo, which sounds awful. So I want to take that back. Please cut that out. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Edit. Edit. Um, edit that fuck out. Well, what I mean is, like, it, you know, just like exploring these different models of things. If you can't count, if you can't, if there aren't, if there isn't an awareness around that and it isn't part of people's everyday life, then it's like, oh, we don't have to deal with it because it's in exactly. the suburbs, right? So unless you're cycling your bike in the Bois, then you don't know about that. And the only people who live in the Bois are like very fucking rich people. Right. Like, no, though, like, because like, well, there, there are, there is like a, you know, sex work forests on either side of Paris. <laughs> it does also seem like there, there are a lot of kind of like on Boulevard around, like for instance, Strasbourg Saint Denis. And sorry, listeners, if this is getting very like local Paris <laughs> inside baseball, <laughs> uh, which doesn't exist in this country. Just kidding. Um, mm. It's very much like they're definitely like localized places um, within the city that are like soliciting not soliciting kind of that is and and i wonder because it's really also kind of by neighborhood by neighborhood who is in the street for instance like whether it's north african people asian people white people like kind of separated by neighborhood so that's always interesting also to be like who is here doing what um and then i mean I, and this is also to say like you know we've talked a lot on sober sex by having guests who are strippers and escorts and pro doms um around kind of what like <laughs> what a rad fun time sex work and recovery can be and how that can be empowering and, and uh, a really like, yeah, an empowering option for, for people as work, you know, but I think it's also important to kind of talk about this side because it can be, I think a delicate thing to talk about sex trafficking when you're, when you are talking about sex work, 
because it's important to mention that they're two different things, right? So I'm really grateful to you to talk to us about this stuff today, today. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, what, what drew you to this particular realm of human rights? Um, well, as I was, I ran away from home very young, and the people that took me in were all sex workers. <laughs> that's that's really that's kind of like my homage to it you know was the girls working right. at the cinema on market street who sort of like made me their little baby boy and and just sort of sort of took me in you know and then you have the the trans the trans community back in the day who were the only really for me anyway safe safe ones to to come spend the night at you know mm. without kind of getting pawed by by the older I, I mean, you know, some some other people, basically. So that's really kind of it. I, I felt comfortable with the subject from the get-go. I just felt like with a migration's concentration, it was time to kind of explore the other side of, of sex work. No, that's really fascinating. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you have kind of an intimacy with within your own personal experience of, of the difference between those things and why, it's, why, both, why looking at both sides is important. Absolutely. Um, and so how, like... How do you take care of yourself and your energy when you're working in a field that has to be so emotionally challenging? Like, you know, you just read us like between the Ukraine and present numbers of sex work, like or sex people being sex trafficked in the world. Like this is, yeah. that's a lot, large number of bad news, you know, and like kind of heartbreaking situations. If, if you sure. look at them on individual levels, like how do you take care of your, your own, like, yeah, well, it's uh well, you know, beyond the cups of coffee, um, <laughs> You know, it's funny, I, I, I'm a recovering Catholic, Roman Catholic, and being here in Paris has really, really been a healing thing. So I, I literally will go to church hoping not to turn into a pillar of salt and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and kind of do my little meditation there and just be there for 15, 20 minutes. Because like I said, there's a church in every block. So, you know, and, he's, and the doors are open, unlike in the United States, you know. So I go in, I hang out, maybe I light a candle for myself or other people and just do a lot of loving kindness meditation on my, on my own. Ooh. You know, that's a big one. That's a big one. Um, that's what really helped me kind of take care of myself, you know, over the years is, is prayer and meditate. Not mostly, mostly meditation, you know, prayer is something I'm, I'm kind of new at. Um, but like they say, it's like prayer. You're talking to notorious God and then meditation, meditating. You're just listening, you know, yeah. So yeah, I think for the most part, that's what I kind of do. And then I run around. Maybe I'll run around the the, the Bois Boulogne. <laughs> that's how I do my little outreach is like do a little jog and yeah, racing. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, racing through. <laughs> no, that's. Do awesome. you think like so? Like listening is a big part of you, how you take care of yourself. Then you're saying of like meditation is something that you're using to kind of listen to tap in and and to ground yourself. Is there any sort of like you, particular practice you use is that like I'm using like a meta practice which is like a loving kindness to kind of heal yourself with definitely meta when I um right. when I had to get away from San Francisco when it got a bit too much you know I did I did lock myself up at a monastery in uh the the mountains of San Diego close to the Mexican border and um over there you could listen dead at night you couldn't hear a thing and it was like the most wow. beautiful thing because when they say silence it can be deafening that was like yeah the deafening, deafening silence. But mm. I like to just listen to my breath. 
you know, that's really as simple as I, I, I have, you know, just listen to my breath, see if it's tight, see if it's fast, if it's slow, if it's rapid. And that usually regulates whatever state I'm in, which is usually these days because of schooling anxious. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how I, that's it's, and it's, I think it's listening to other people, really other people's stories really help. Often when we're talking about sex work, it's so like policy related mm. and people are so much in that headspace, that sort of intellectual figuring it out space. And, the people who are making the decisions aren't necessarily in touch with their bodies in that deeper way. Do you think that that's where it sometimes becomes a bit like, we're just making decisions on behalf of people without yeah. kind of like connecting in with our hearts. Do you think that that plays a big part into like policies not actually working? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, mean, I think a lot of <laughs> Yeah. yeah They're just out of people. I think a lot, some people are out of touch and then I think policymakers and politicians are really out of touch at times. You know, and I think that's why you need a diversity of voices working in these fields to be able to really, really represent people on a local level. You know, because we work a lot on the um, global level where I'm being taught, but I'm realizing that the translation from the global level into the local levels are where it becomes very difficult. You know, right. I mean, one, one, one example is that there's this um, uh, prostitution law, 4445-1, something like that here in, in France. It's new that um, is there to help uh, workers. But because they're prosecuting um, clients through different um, different means, like not, not using the, the international laws, they're using local laws, like it's supposed to be uh, um, against the dignity of humanity, things get prosecuted very differently. So the police need training as well around stuff like this in terms of policy, you know? So having to train people how to take care of workers is important, you know, not just putting in a law and hoping it'll all just be fine. Right. It's how to actually deal with people on the day to day. So in a humane level, right? Rather than just coming in with like a huge, like, okay, now we have a law. Absolutely. This is how it's going to be. It's like fucking Monty Python or something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Absolutely. Christ. You know, these we're here. anyway. Feel like we could keep going on down this line but actually on sober sets what we like to often talk about and go back to is your personal experience and so hopefully it's all right if we slightly sure. divert the old train yeah let's go from policy to informed experience so how um do you feel like some of your first messages uh around sex and sexuality have informed how you are as a, a grown-up human being or what were they i guess like first of all yeah. my dad <laughs> my dad um is a bit old school you know but um he would say in his dialect which means that so long as there's a hole, put it in, <laughs> which is horrible. It's so bad. And that's my, my point in saying that and you can delete that. It's so gross. No, not at that, all. But I mean, like, yeah, this, is an, or this is a very strong message. Yes. <laughs> he was. And we say it in the UK, every hole is a goal. Right. It's like, yeah, I go. never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> every hole is a goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. Same message, I right? I touch my ears with horror. <laughs> I'm like, am I right? <laughs> this will do. holes. I'm pointing to my eyes. <laughs> I feel like I'm blushing. Woo. Yeah. You know, that, that was, <laughs> that's an interesting message, right? Yeah, no, I think, I, I don't, you know, it's funny because, um, I grew up with a, a very open family in terms of the way they dealt with sex and sexuality. I, I mean, obviously to the, the very base <laughs> with my father, but I, I never really had any hangups about talking about it. It was just never a, an issue, you know. I think coming from uh, where I come from in the Philippines, it just was a natural part of life, you know. It wasn't like, you know, Nothing weird. But then it, you you also mentioned that you're a recovering Roman Catholic and that you ran away from home at a young age. Yeah. So we're curious as to how that kind of unfolded. Yeah. Well, the Roman Catholic part, I mean, you know, we're, we're the Spanish were in the Philippines by 1521. So they say 300 years in the convent. And then when America came, it was 200 years in, in Hollywood. So I have that whole mix of stuff. So it's... Um, you would think that coming from a Roman Catholic country that it, the, sexually we'd be very repressed, but I think because there's such deep indigenous roots there, you just it, people are still very in touch with the with with the indigenous part of stuff, and we just know that sex is uh, part of life. It's not a it's it, it wasn't anything particularly sinful. At least again in my family, I left when I was 16 to be honest with you because I was bullied at school, and um, I was bored in the East Bay. You know, and I knew San Francisco was 45 minutes away in a BART ride, you know, and when you're trying to find, back then, you know, I date myself back in the late 80s, early 90s when I was a teenager, um, there was still a lot of oppression around around coming out and, you know, somebody had actually recently told me about the coming out process where it's now you're letting people in, which is really sweet and very endearing Oh my me. God. I just got shivers. That's yeah. so beautiful. It was really beautiful and it was presented to me that was, oh, you're inviting people in, but back then, you're coming out. Yeah. You Oof. know? What pressure. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit of a, a different dynamic there. And um, the dynamic I came up against is I couldn't be here because they just didn't want me to be here, really. You know, so I had to go to San Francisco counterculture and and... and, and find myself you know and unfortunately with that you know you also with the good stuff and the bad stuff you have to wait with the bad stuff you know it was also speaking a culture of drugs. which yeah how did drugs and alcohol enter the picture oh yeah <laughs> you it's like I, alley-oop <laughs> i wonder right i wonder you know it just the 90s was a big club scene you know it was just monster clubs and everyone was going out and i was i mean i was always kind of like a tall kid growing up and I just got into places, you know, and I, I think I've always had a wild streak. No, I, I know I've always had a wild streak. So <laughs> I was a party boy and I was like, I didn't care. Let's drop this, put that in, add that, you know, um, until it got really, really out of control, you know, obviously, because that's usually what happens with these things. And then, and also with me, I, I was always really caught up in the idea of having a boyfriend and settling down, you know, but my, my wildness. It was like a goal. Um, back then, yeah, yeah, for sure. I wanted to to have the great love and soulmate and stuff like that, but that just, you know, didn't happen, you know. Um, so what I ended up doing was if you can't beat him, join him, you know, because right. a lot of the guys around me were running around doing stuff. And I was like, well, you know, you're either going to miss out or, you know, and in a way, I'm glad I did. But at the same time, it did get me into a lot of hot water situations. And that's putting it mildly, <laughs> you know, 
Right. You know, that's really... Yeah, I feel like you're being very delicate. You're like, hot water situation. Yeah, well, you're an <laughs> academic. Well, can I tell you about, like... <laughs> <laughs> if you really want me to get down and dirty. Yeah, no. Dirty. I was a mess. I was a mess. You know, it got into injection drug use. You know, like, that's that's the extent of my meth use, you know, with, with the party scene. And unfortunately, I mean, you can't go much further than that, you know, beyond the jails, institution and death thing, you know, like it was just that I had to take it to the nth degree, you know, and a lot of that is just really about wanting to be loved, I feel, you know, you want to connect so badly. And yet this culture around you reflects back that sort of inability to connect with each other. And so you find yourselves in the cycle of repeating the the party and play thing and yet no one's really connecting you know no one's really becoming intimate it's just like a stream of bodies kind of doing weird olympic movements you know <laughs> and that's in the so interesting in that in that like specifically kind of around chemsex and and meth like that's yeah. the like I remember asking what, like, what somebody's drug of choice was, and they were coming kind of from that universe, and they said intimacy, and I was like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you're a drug addict. As, you know, because as a cocaine addict, that was not what I was looking for. <laughs> um, but it seems like because it's so wrapped up in, like, love and sex and kind of like a bottomless pit, like, that it, it seems much more closely linked to, like, as you say, the desire to be loved than maybe other drugs might be, you know? Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think what really, what really helped me out of that was recovery, you know? So how did that eventually happen? <laughs> just like, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. We were like, just setting us up today. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> how did that happen? It happened when I was 23, you know? And, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I had a friend who took me to a me a meeting or should I say that anyway, I said it. And uh, somebody... Non-specific recovery meeting, good. Yeah, non-specific. <laughs> and uh, I was just sitting there <laughs> listening and somebody said, yeah, they hadn't had sex in five years. And I just found that to be so like, wow, like you hadn't had sex in five years. And, you know, um, and you're saying that to this group of people. It, it was a very power. It was, it left me a really strong impression of like shame for him, shame for myself. And why I felt that shame that he was being so open about it. And, um, but it definitely, it, it, it opened me up to a world of possibilities, you know, when I heard that. And it took a while. It took a couple of years after that. Can I just pause you there? Sure. What, what do you mean? What was it about that specific message, though? Like, I haven't had sex for five years that, like, kind of reeled you in. It was like, do people really do that? It, it was just like, wow, right. I love sex. Like, I don't, you know, like five years, geez. You know, like okay. it's, that was that. But also the fact that I think I always had this thing about celibacy, like being a monk, being in a monastery and just forgetting about all that. And, and Right. That was like a, a mecca for you in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and it just sort of was like, it just struck me, you know, Um I mean, in fact, to be honest with you, it's been for me, it's been about 2.5 years that I haven't had sex with anybody, you know, and that's, I think, part of the recovery process for me, too, because it had been so like amplified. And now it's just nice to just be like, all right, I'm going to buy a dog, maybe move to the outskirts of Paris and whatever. <laughs> I won't even worry about it. Um, yeah. so, so kind of liberating in a way that you felt like, oh my God, there's a choice not to have to fuck. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And I mean, okay, as this yeah. podcast is called Sober Sex, uh, like how, in how and by what means, like what were the kind of actions that, that recovery has changed your relationship with love and sex? Like how did that transformation happen? Well, what happened was in my obsession to, to connect with the, somebody else, I realized I had to ask myself the questions like, would I date me right now? Mm. You know, would I have sex with me right now? And like, I said, okay. Gosh. Yeah. So it was like, would I date me at the time that where I was? And I said, fuck no, like, you're a hot mess. Like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't date you. Like, yeah, like, there's just too much drama, you know, that came with the, this body, really. Mm. Um, and so what I really wanted was to just sort of express myself in other ways beyond just my physical, my physicality, you know, like I really wanted to develop myself as a person before I, I got back into that, you know, and for the longest wow. time, it was just about the way I looked or, you know, the way people perceive me from the outside, you know, and being in that culture, um, in gay culture that way. And, um, well, usually the chem sex culture really, and yeah, this ain't going to stay, young <laughs> you know what i mean like things are going to change i needed to find something else to do really um but yeah that, that's really what it was about would i date me would i have sex with me right now that was the question but the interesting you talk about like would i date me and would i fuck me you know yeah. like and that they they're like different things for you sure. i find that really interesting because when i came in like the person i met i'm married to and i have a baby with now, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a strange miracle. I love it so much. And nobody thought this was going to work out, least of all him or anyone who was in our close circle. But it has, you know, not without a lot of lot of hard work right. and intentional like relationship work. But also, like when I came in, I was like totally fucked me. I was like crazy bitch. Like what a fun fuck. <laughs> be in a relationship? Like when you come into recovery, when nobody's really I don't think we even really know. Well, I should stop saying we like fucking off, but like I did not know what a relationship was. Mm. And I'd been in relationships, sure. like a lot of long term relationships, but I didn't like being in a relationship in recovery is next level shit, mm. isn't it? When you agree, like everybody, humans? I, I'm single, so I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Louisa? I mean, I think. Because I got sober so young, it took me a really long time to uh, to even want that in a real way. Like, I could want the idea of it and, like, want to be, like, as kind of today I was saying, like, to be well enough to be in a relationship. And I could perform that. But then when it came to actual human intimacy and having to, like, consider somebody else, that was yeah. very difficult for a long time. So it took me until I was about you know, 10 years sober before I was able to kind of um, like show up in any serious way. Cause like either I, there was always kind of like a, an exit strategy or just, you know, like fear. I think that my darkness, I couldn't even look at it. Therefore, how could somebody tolerate my, like my shadow, you know? And so that was like, it was that the work in on kind of outside issues that of course, like, you know, recovery supported that allowed me to be able to be present enough and like myself enough to be able to be like and also I think there was like a kind of divine mechanism that happened of readiness you know but like it took a long freaking time 
<laughs> it's like I, I really like that question of like would I date me or would I fuck me and like yeah I mean it, like I, I think like pe- sober people love fucking crazy people like that's clear yeah. <laughs> but whether yeah. that's a good idea is like <laughs> a totally different topic yeah Indeed. is this beneficial for my future self or is it right now this very fucking moment wouldn't this be a good time right now probably yeah yes yeah, the problem. So um, we often hear at sober sex, although I feel like I keep saying like at sober sex, and I have literally haven't been. You started it. Stop it. Own it. It's fine. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's fine. I am owning it. I'm just saying we often is not the word. Sh- it's true. In, in general, <laughs> we often we often <laughs> talk about a sex ideal on sober sex and who we want to show up in um, as in a relationship, romantic, short or long term. Do you have? Any- yeah, or sexual, or do you have a current ideal you're working with today? Oh, um, I heard se- sapiosexual recently. What does that mean? I think that's like you, you fall in love with a pe- person's mind or intelligence or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of becoming, it's true what they say about old dogs and lack of like testosterone. Like, you know, it's not, for me anyway, it stops being about the physical so much. I mean, sure, that still counts, but like, the mind really that's such a turn on to me and of course you got to be breathing that's a start you gotta you know yeah please have a a heartbeat i start with that usually (laughs) more more specifically like what's who do you want to show up as like you've clearly taken a long break from actively seeking uh like sexual intimacy um in order to kind of become who you are you know so i wonder kind of like who do you see yourself like? Who is the sex ideal that you are growing into? Like, who the per- who is the person that you are showing up as? Oh, that's a that's a heavy question. Um, yes, you're welcome. <laughs> wow. Ooh, um, you know, I want to be an open, confident, kind person. It's really what I want to be. I want to be a kind person. You know, there's not a lot of kindness in this world, and there's something about a kind person that just warms the heart and makes one feel at ease. Um, and of course, like kindness to me can be kind of sexy, you know, um, to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, I think I want to be a kind, confident, um, person, you know, it's probably it for the most part right now. Sure. I want to lose 10 pounds and whatever, but (laughs) you know, but like, not all that you know i just I, I like the idea of um being somebody that can that somebody else looks to for comfort or 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 you know solace or, or something you know like yeah because you can you don't want to be fuck boy your whole life <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah you don't want to be that guy the rest of your life that's that's boring you know you want to be a nice guy i think Oh, well, and and to, yeah. to kind of reflect that back, I like, we don't know each other so well, but the, like, one of our first interactions, I saw you sitting next to somebody who has it having a really hard time and not mm-hmm. in any kind of like sexual or creepy way. I saw that you like they they were weeping. And you were so like, considerate and like tender and just put your arm around them and kind of like were present with them. And I was just like, I love today. I want to know. Let's Aww. interview today on <laughs> <That's very laughs> uh, yeah, that. That's you. so beautiful. Aww. That's so beautiful. That's very And nice. I experience you. I experience you like only from this like short hour we spent together as that. It's just so mega. Aww. I don't know. 
in this, I wish I could dive through the screen. It's very I mean, sweet. you are neighbors. <laughs> yeah, we are neighbors. You live up, <laughs> you live up the hill. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, sure. yes. For oh sure. my God. Soon. So what, what is next for you today in life in recovery hmm. and your career and very exciting, um, masters well i would like to career-wise i'm probably going to end up going to law school and be more in debt okay. you know because i think that's really the only the, the way one can really really be effective in this field for me anyway um but as far as recovery is concerned i i really want to go to Thich Nhat han's place here in france plum village shout yeah. out <laughs> I really want to do that. I want to do that. You know, I know he's back in Vietnam, but there's just something about that just seems like this whole utopian thing in my mind about it, which, you know, obviously it's probably not, but it's here. Why not use it? So that's yeah. a future, that's a future thing, I think, for me anyway. And I want to go to Chartres, Chartres the cathedral. Yeah. Those are all short term awesome. plans. Yeah. We love That's your nice awesome. plans. Yeah, yeah, simple. <laughs> like how they're like fancy. spiritual French adventures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. With baguettes. With lots yes. of declares and baguettes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so lightning we pivot thus into the lightning round. Mm. What is your favorite thing about living in Paris? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Baguettes. Yeah. <laughs> baguettes. Perfect. Yeah. Baguettes. Baguettes. Why? How do you eat your baguette? How do you? Which hole does your baguette? Any, any, any way can get it. Horizontal. Horizontal. How do you eat yours? Mine, mine are usually <laughs> quickies in the hallway. You know, like by the time I'm going, nice. I live five floors up, so by the time I get up, it's already over. I know. The middle is out. The middle's out. It's like it, it happens fast. <laughs> Lightning round. Yes. It's like the start of the <laughs> I love you. <laughs> what turns you on? Yeah. Don't say sapiosexual again. Yeah, yeah. That. What turns me on? God, that's a hard one. Um more baguettes. More baguettes. <laughs> you, you know, I I, I, I hate to say it, but mas masculinity is sexy to me. Just because of, you know, oh, I'm a gay, you know, <laughs> so like there's there's something about that that's still kind of attractive, but not like in that toxic, nasty way, but just like a guy. That's it. Not just CrossFit. Not yeah, no, 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 not not, <laughs> not yoked out CrossFit schmo dude, but just like yeah. somebody that's confident in their being, in their body as a man, as a man. Yeah, Woo! that's it. I love that. Uh, what is the favorite TV show you've watched recently? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I have a TV here, but like, I honestly, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I've been very, I've been into the news. That's all. I, I don't even watch TV uh, anymore. I know. Ooh. I know. I got to be up on world stuff. But like, of course you have. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No TV. What news? Where do you get your news? I get it from Sky News Live on YouTube. And then yeah. um, I also get the, I think the BBC comes on live as well. Um, and, and NBC, which is okay, but like, that's an American channel, but that's about it, you know? And then I also read NPR and the post and the Monde and whatever I can get my claws on really. And then, you know, like I said, my professors are always like throwing stuff my way. So that's kind of how I get, but yeah, it's been a non-entertainment, um, year. Season. Season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well Season of life. Season of life. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, what's the best investment you've made in terms of time or money or energy? My education, for sure. Amazing. Yeah. What a good, sure. what a good answer. Oh, for that's sure. so cool. 
Yeah. Well, and not just, I guess, sobriety, obviously, being sober is a big investment in oneself. You know, you are the longest relationship you're going to have. That's been an amazing Mm. investment, you know. So without without my recovery, there's no school, period. Yes, true. But it's and also good the thing. way you talk about your education in terms of like, what do I need to do next to be effective in this? Because often I think we can just be like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right. you know, it's, it's like, how can I be effective in the work that I do? Because that actually also leads to fulfillment, Absolutely. right, as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think impact is a big key word that, pe- that, that that's that's being used right now. Like how how can I make um, the biggest impact with with what 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 I what I have in the capacity mm-hmm. to do? Um, and if I'm in this field, we'll see. You know, I'd I'd like to make some kind of little ripple in the lives of other people, whether it's just in recovery, which is a lot already, and also outside of that field into a more global a more global sense of the word. You know, who knows? I'm, I'm not, I'm not like a big politico. My that that was my my dad and my uncle, but um, I think mostly in the policy sense, that's where my yeah my head's at. Yeah, and amazing, you can b- both bring your head and your heart into that work. You know, because you have the lived experience, but you also have the fucking the nonce. Do you know what I mean? And I it's like, so. what a powerful combo. Thank you. I I think I, I'm mostly heart to. I think. I think I'm mostly a heart guy, um, and then the brain kind of just follows. If my heart's not in it, I don't. It just doesn't. It's very wooden. Yeah. If it's if there's no heart in there, you know, I have to be in there, engaged, fully engaged. It, it's like that intimacy thing. I have to be intimate with my work. You know, like I feel like I have to bear myself to what I do for a living. Otherwise, I can't do it. It just um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. No. You know, I think passion, passion has a lot to do with it you know if i feel passionately about a subject i'm there 150 percent yeah yeah that's beautiful so it's so beautiful finally what do you love um i love my family i do i love my family it's yeah i think about my family the, the times through the darkness they were a constant and um they're still there which is amazing and i think a lot of this a lot of this, like collecting pieces of paper from schools and stuff, has a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, they sacrificed so much for us to get from the Philippines to drop our whole life over there, sell the house, sell everything, and, and start over. And here I am at my father's age when he moved to the Philippines, moving to France, and, and doing the same thing. Mm. You know, so in dark hours, you know, I think about my family for sure, for sure, hands down. Absolutely beautiful. And where can we find you if you want to be found on the World Wide Web? Oh, what do I do these days? Um, I, I'm, only <laughs> really in the, <laughs> I'm only on Instagram, to be honest with you. That's it. It's uh, it's I went with Hella Tadeo, H E L L A. That's really all I do. And I, t- I tweet once in a while, which I, I think I'm the only Tadeo over there. Tadeo Ilardi, I L A R D E. But other than that, that's, yeah, I have no time, you know, to do that. <laughs> You're like, I'm a real student. <laughs> yeah, I'm very boring. I'm very yeah. boring. I go to better no. in days. <laughs> we love that. So <laughs> doing important work. Today, thank, you. thank you so much for being Absolutely. such a wonderful guest. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, you guys. I'm very honored.